0: Hey, this is Ellen and Cisco research resident at Cincinnati Children's Hospital.
1: And Rod Gerardo, the other research resident at Cincinnati Children's Hospital. Ellen, what are we doing?
0: We're going back through another installment of our article reviews from the Journal of Pediatric Surgery. So this is the October edition. We talked to a few authors again, and this time Dr. Paul Tam chose these articles for us to review.
2: I'm Paul Tam. Um... Chair Professor of Pediatric Surgery at the University of Hong Kong, also the regional uh, editor for General Pediatric Surgery.
1: All of the articles that we talk about, we're going to give you a link below. So you can scroll down under the media player, click on the link. You can open up any of these, read along with us while you're listening, whether it's in the State Current Pediatric Surgery app or Apple Podcasts, Spotify, SoundCloud, Stitcher.
0: Okay, so first we have an article out of Texas Children's Hospital. It's called What Happens After the Hospital? An analysis of longitudinal care needs
3: in children treated for child physical abuse.
1: So we were lucky enough to sit down with the author. She is a general surgery resident.
3: My name is um, Brittany Johnson and I'm a fourth year categorical general surgery resident at the University of Mississippi Medical Center. And I did two years of dedicated clinical research um, at Texas Children's Hospital.
1: And she summarized this very eloquently.
3: There are a lot of studies that talk about, you know, identifying patients in the ER, kind of documenting the injury pattern. But we were really wondering, especially with the children that have more serious injuries, what happens to them when they go home? We have a database within our hospital that tracks all of our trauma patients. So that's what we used and went through and pulled out the non-accidental traumas. Then we kind of looked at each patient looked at their hospital course. What were their injuries? You know, what consults did they have? And then we looked at their discharge instructions, like what follow up was recommended, and then came back and followed them for a year to see how many of those visits that were recommended they actually made.
1: There was a pretty surprising finding in the results here. It surprised us and even surprised Brittany, when she talked about it.
3: I do think the rates themselves were actually quite high to where the patients aren't following up as recommended, but the rates are not low. Um, so I think my interpretation of it is that that's actually an opportunity, that these families are trying to make these appointments.
0: This article, you know, the results really highlighted the need for multidisciplinary care in trauma patients in general and patients coming with um or physical abuse, and the potential need for a medical home, as Brittany pointed out.
2: We might congratulate ourselves for having done a good job in perhaps saving the kid and identifying the problem, but perhaps not aware that uh, we have a uh, responsibility uh, for the long-term health,
3: and uh, we have to be advocates for the children something that we can help them with. You know, if it's developing a medical home, we talked about that in the paper, to have all of the visits done at one time. You, you can see a lot of the other systems in pediatrics, they do that. When you think of the, the kids that have complex medical um, conditions, they will make all of those appointments on one day. You know, why can't we do that in pediatric surgery for these patients? If they need to see multiple services, we can decrease the burden on the families and make sure that all of us are available on one day.
4: Yeah, I, I I think that that is a could be with a follow up article could be a very it's a unique idea. I think it could be very helpful. Um, it's hard at a given hospital to to change the whole infrastructure for that, but I think that we're moving to multidisciplinary care, and this is one example of that. And the fact that you know we're seeing eighty five percent follow up is surprising to me and encouraging.
3: So I think the next step would be looking specifically at the patients that did have lower follow-up and talking to those families. Then we can figure out and better understand what their reasons were so that we could attack them. I think the other thing is looking at, um, we mentioned briefly looking at accidental trauma as a comparison to this study so that we can say, is the follow-up really any different? You know, do the non-accidental traumas have a lower rate of follow-up compared to the accidental trauma? You know, is this something that is common to all of our patients you know so i think those would be the two next steps
0: the next one is called surgical necrotizing enterocolitis association between surgical indication timing and outcomes and this article is out of the uk
1: yeah southampton we have to talk to the
5: senior author dr nigel hall thanks for inviting me to this podcast um my name is nigel hall i'm a pediatric surgeon at Southampton Children's Hospital, which is on the south coast of the United Kingdom. uh, And I'm associate professor here at the University of Southampton.
0: So he described the general premise of this article.
5: So this was um, a secondary analysis of a prospectively collected observational study that took place um, in all 27 pediatric surgery centers in the UK. So it's a whole population-based study, which I think is one of its strengths. Um, And it was uh, through this uh, organization called BAPSCATH that was led by collaborator, Professor Marion Knight, who really is the brains behind this organization. And uh, the data set comprised data from a year's worth of babies who had surgery for NEC in the UK. What we wanted to look at as the primary outcomes were death or parental nutrition requirement at 28 days after surgery. What we looked at was uh, the reason why surgeons said they had... Decided to do the operation on these babies, and we also looked at the time period that elapsed between the baby presenting with a diagnosis of NEC and actually having their surgery.
0: And he told us, you know, that he really wasn't surprised by these results, in that you know, finding that babies with necrotizing enterocolitis who fail medical management and end up going to the operating room end up doing worse than the patients who went to the operating room sooner because of perforation or suspicion for necrotic bowel.
5: I think what this was, that one of the first opportunities we'd had was to really document what we thought, um, if you like, was our underlying hypothesis, was that there did seem to be um, a relationship between the indication for surgery, so the reason why babies had surgery, um, and the time it took to get them to have surgery, and also the um, outcome at the end of the day. So so overall, there were about 130 babies with NEC in this population. um, And about half of those um, had a bowel perforation. And then of the other half of babies, what we found was that about a third of them were really, really poorly. And the surgeon decided at the time that they were just really sick and they proceeded fairly quickly to have an operation as well. Then there was the, the two thirds of the babies, if you like, who didn't have a perforation, and and they eventually got an operation so their indication for surgery was what we called failed medical treatment and there were two things about that baby that, that group of babies one is that they had the longest time from presentation to actually getting their operation and also uh in that group of babies the outcomes were worst. now the next
1: step of these results i kind of thought and todd kind of thought could this maybe lead us to some sort of treatment algorithm,
5: some sort of protocol. It's about being able to identify the babies who need surgery early enough, and then also understand how surgeons make decisions about surgery.
4: This article points out the problem of gestalt in necrotizing enterocolitis. You know, it's really easy when they have free air. When they don't, we're all different. And we don't have a defined protocol that's been built yet. And that's kind of what this article is sort of showing is that when you don't have a definitive protocol, then you're gonna be hedging and hemming and hawing every
2: day about, do I go to the operating room? It is obvious that we currently do not have the objective clinical markers, whether they are the uh, clinical features or uh, novel biomarkers to help us make an earlier decision to uh,
5: operate. Hopefully this um, has raised this part of the way we treat babies with NEC in, in people's minds as something that we could consider doing something about. But it's certainly gonna be, I think, quite a lot of hard work to to really change practice, but but something that I really think is is worth pursuing.
4: I think this is a study that keep poking us in the side to say, let's figure out how to use either a machine learning algorithm or some more machine-directed way of analyzing the data where we can see what constellation of data points tells you when the best chance of there being a surgical
2: problem is. And who knows, um, with AI, social media, and all this digital knowledge, I can't help but feel that some of these should introduced into our algorithm in managing patients rather than just the surgeon's um, clinical decision.
3: So then
0: the next one is out of Nationwide Children's Hospital, and it's called One Year Impact of a Bowel Management Program in Treating Fecal Incontinence in Patients with Anorectal Malformations. And for this one, we talked to the first author, Dr. Wood.
6: Hi, my name's Richard Wood. I'm the Chief of Colorectal and Pulver Reconstructive Surgery at Nationwide Children's in Columbus, and um, it's great to be here.
0: And he shared with us the, the outpatient bowel management program at Nationwide.
6: Yeah, so we started working here in Columbus in 2014 and established a bowel management program, but um, it was really in 2015 that we started recording the outcomes in a standardized way because up until now there really hasn't been the use of uh, standardized definitions and patient reported outcomes and experience measures within this field and so we really wanted to do that in order to try and get a better understanding of the patient's experience of bowel management because after all it's a quality of life uh, tool and so we set up this cohort with um, you know all these standardized things in order to try and get an objective study of this patient population.
0: It was an important paper because prior studies have looked more at short-term outcomes after bowel management programs and they decided to look at the long-term outcomes and see if the good results are sustainable.
6: We didn't want to measure it at one week because bowel management outcomes at one week really don't mean all that much in that, you know, it's an artificial environment. You've removed people out of the environment. And so we chose to do our measure at one year because we wanted to be able to show that the changes that we had made were sustained and were sustained within their normal environment. But what we were able to show in the study was that if you look at the kids who were clean, their quality of life significantly improved. And if you look at the kids that are not clean, their quality of life did not improve at all.
0: Even after a year, you know, there's still 30% of patients that they, that went through this program that were still struggling with fecal incontinence. And so then, you know, this paper also points to more research as far as addressing that group of patients.
6: It's very sobering to realize that although you throw all these resources at these patients, you have a Cohort of 30% that you have not improved their quality of life and that they're still having accidents. And we all know that kids are mean, so kids having accidents at school is a real problem. I think what I wanted to do with the study was lay down a baseline for where do we go and which are the patients that we now need to drill into further. So now I kind of know 70% of the kids are going to do great. And what I really need to do is focus the attention on the other 30%.
1: You know, another thing to point out is that, you know, not everybody that listens to this podcast is gonna have access to a bowel management program. Um, And this is kind of what Todd thought about that.
4: Honestly, a lot of people see the value of this, don't have the volume or the resources to build a formal program. And it's very reasonable to send these kids to a nearby file management program.
2: I think this this is uh, something that is very uh, practical and can be used by all surgeons, uh, the, this sort of message.
1: Good article. A lot of really important people put this together, so it's worth your time to read.
0: Yes. And the last one is also about patients with anorectal malformations. So this one is out of Italy, Rome, Italy. It's called Predictive Value of Spine Bone Anomalies for Spinal Cord Abnormalities in Patients with Anorectal Malformations we had the opportunity to talk to one of the neurosurgeons.
1: Uh,
7: Hi, I am Giacomo Esposito, I am a neurosurgeon, and uh, um, I work in Bambino Gesù Children's Hospital in Rome.
1: And we also want to very much thank uh, Bambino Gesù Children's Hospital in Rome, Italy, for working with us to coordinate... Um, the chance to talk to Dr. Esposito.
0: So in this study, it was a retrospective review of patients with anal rectal malformations, and they were looking at the patients who, you know, did or did not have spinal cord abnormalities, and they were trying to see how they correlated with imaging findings of sacral or vertebral anomalies.
7: Uh, the, um, the idea of, of this, uh, this article was born from a clinical, practical uh, observation of this patient. Our, uh, our study is a retrospective study, and we analyzed uh, uh, 350 patients in a period between uh, 1999 and 2019. Uh, I think that is... Um, is one of the largest uh, series,
0: um, and the, you know they wanted to see how much they correlated. Which they found that they did correlate quite well. That patients with a sacral or a vertebral anomaly were likely to have a spinal cord abnormality.
7: I think that the, the, the main results of our uh, our article is uh, uh, to have demonstrate the, uh, the the close relation between uh, spinal cord and spinal bone
0: but they found that even though they correlated there were still plenty of patients who did not have sacral vertebral anomalies still had spinal cord abnormalities and so they feel that MRI is still necessary to search for that spinal cord abnormality after we we actually spoke to a couple of pediatric colorectal surgeons that we know and typically in the practice here or around us is to get an ultrasound um, shortly after birth and that typically is sufficient to look for a spinal cord abnormality and it sounds like in where dr esposito is coming from they have found mri to be necessary to really look for those abnormalities
4: there's variability in the use of ultrasound for figuring out if a patient has a tethered cord it looks like radiographs are not a good substitute and so we're still back to ultrasound versus MRI, and that still is not the same everywhere.
1: Yeah, yeah. I don't know where in the world you are listening to our podcast, but go ahead and leave a comment below. Whether you're in the Stay Current Pediatric Surgery app or Spotify or Apple Podcasts, leave a comment and let us know what is your practice to find spinal cord abnormalities in these children with indirect malformations.
2: This center's uh, review provides us with sufficient information um, knowledge that to convince anyone who is not doing regular uh, or routine assessment of um, the spinal cord and, and the spine is, uh, and sacrum itself, that they should be more serious with uh, imaging.
0: Dr. Esposito also pointed out in, his, in our discussion and in the article the need for multidisciplinary care in these patients.
2: Our study is
7: interesting because the uh, um, uh, there, d- behind there is uh, a multidisciplinary team. I work uh, together, uh, a general uh, surgeon, neonatal surgeon and uh, urologist. And uh, we create a, a multidisciplinary team and multidisciplinary workflow to the management of patients with anorectal malformation.
0: And I think that's a theme from all of these articles is how many different, physicians and healthcare providers are involved in the care of these complex patients?
1: Whether it is the pediatric trauma patient who necessitates follow-up or the bowel management patient who needs to see the surgeon, the nurse practitioner, maybe he sees GI, maybe he sees someone else, or it's, you know, in the NICU and you have a patient with necrotizing enterocolitis, it really, uh, it takes a village for a lot of these. And it probably should because, you know, I think it I think it only benefits the patient to bring in other other minds.
0: So I think that's a good summary or summary statement about the multidisciplinary care in all these articles. We'll be we keep doing more of these these podcasts. We'll have one coming out from the November issue.
1: Yeah, keep November. your eyes peeled, ears peeled. Or if there's an article that we didn't highlight that you really want us to talk about then find us on social media, uh, subscribe to our YouTube channel, download the State Current Pediatric Surgery app. It's in the Apple App Store. It's in the Google Play Store. But until then, I'm Rod Gerardo.
0: I'm Ellen Ncisco. And, and remember, knowledge should be free.
5: There we go.